This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is a Business Radio special presentation of Mind Your Business, live from the EY Strategic Growth Forum in Palm Springs, California. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome back to a special two-hour episode of Mind Your Business, live from the EY Strategic Growth Forum in Palm Springs, California. You're listening to SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Warden School. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm the Chief Content Officer at the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurs. Uh, having a great time here at an amazing event in Palm Springs. It looks beautiful outside, although I haven't actually been outside yet. I'm hoping to get there at some point. Uh, the Strategic Growth Forum is an annual invite-only event with more than 2,000 CEOs and founders in attendance. We're honored to be here. A big thanks to EY for hosting us. Uh, normally on this show, as you may know, uh, we uh, really enco- encourage our listeners to call in. We take your calls. We try to offer advice about whatever your uh, pain, uh, whatever pain you're experiencing, help you uh, deal with it if possible. But today we're we're focusing on speaking with a series of really impressive entrepreneurs who are sharing their journey, a little bit of their pain uh, with us, and seeing what we can learn from it. And uh, our next guests are uh, Deborah Jasper and Betsy Hubbard, who are co-founders of Mindset Digital. Welcome to the show. Um, who would like to go first? Betsy, Deborah, tell us, uh, <laughs> Deborah, tell us, uh, <laughs> where did this idea come from? You know, Betsy and I launched the first social media fellowship for journalists back in 2009, and we had applications from around the world, and we were really teaching CNN, 60 Minutes, Chicago Tribune, Lots of uh, journalists from major news organizations how to think about telling stories via Twitter. And back then, that was pretty radical. Journalists didn't know everything (laughs) they needed to know about social media? Is that what you're saying? We were actually working in Ukraine as well, and we came back and said, you know, this Twitter thing, this is going to change the world. We had no idea how much, but uh, obviously it did. Deborah, you were a journalist yourself. I I was, and we were Mm -hmm. running the Kiplinger Program in Public Affairs Journalism in the John Glenn School at Ohio State. And then businesses came to us and said, can you teach us how to tell stories in a much more condensed way? And today what we're really doing is saying, look, you have eight seconds, go. You, to do business in the digital age, you have to be able to write for mobile. You have to get to short, organized, skimmable. You have to be able to sell on new digital platforms. And you have to be able to lead in this kind of world of AI and charming chatbots. So doing business today just requires an entire rethinking of how you train your workforce. I want to get back to that real quick about you know what you do for your clients and, and how you help them. I suspect there are a lot of people listening who could use that help. <laughs> uh, but Betsy, tell us about your background too. Yeah, my background's a bit different. I was more in the public affairs side of it, and I have degrees in political science and public policy. Uh, I was a grant maker at the Pew Charitable Trusts, so working for change before I ended up at Ohio State with Deborah running the Kiplinger program. So always thinking about how society advances, how people communicate, how they connect, and how change happens. That's been the through line in my career. So it's kind of a natural evolution to look at digital media. While at Ohio State, we taught courses on the impact of digital media on public policy. So really looking at how radically our world is changing, and then the next step is helping people adjust to that. I spent many years uh, as a journalist working for uh, media companies and uh, covering entrepreneurs, and you, you can't spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs without thinking at some point, boy, that, that would be really interesting. I'd love to try that. But I never had the, uh, the guts or the nerve to actually do it. Was that a big leap for you guys? Oh, man, was it a big leap. Um, so we, um, my dissertation was on the art of powerful micro-storytelling. And when we came together, we, we had pretty cool gigs at Ohio Wait, your, State. Your dissertation <laughs> in school? Yeah, when I got for, my Ph.D. In, in education. Micro-storytelling. In Appalachia. So I'm actually from southern Kentucky and really grew up looking at powerful storytellers and how do you tell stories in new ways. And when we came together and we were doing the, this kind of storytelling in, in micro ways for Twitter or for social, you realized companies can't be long and meandering and boring. I mean, boring doesn't work. It never did. But now it really doesn't work in this world where we all have our phones and we have other options. So when we took the leap, we used to call ourselves two women and a laptop <laughs> uh, the first year. We were actually the national keynote speakers for KeyBank, and they sent us on this 17-city tour from Florida to Alaska giving keynotes and training business leaders on how to think differently. But then from there, people said, we love what you do, but we can't 
We had a client saying, I have 15,000 people who need this. I can't fly them all to St. Louis, so how can you help us? So we went online and started creating gamified, uh, a lot more gamified courses. We brought in an Xbox game designer uh, from Microsoft and National Geographic. We started saying, can we rid the world of, of just boring, bad corporate training? And I can that's... answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how good you are, <laughs> you're not going to do that. That's sort of our overall goal, though, you know, because really, especially It's today, a worthy cause. Today's workforce, we're just not going to put up with bad training, but we, a lot of our clients are investing millions or billions of dollars in new technologies, or they'll bring in, you know, the folks to tell them about new innovation, and then they skip the investment in getting the workforce to adopt all these new technologies and to adopt this digital mindset, and that's really the space we play in. How do you get people to actually lean in and do this stuff? Who's a typical client for you? A lot of Fortune 100 financial firms. So we do a lot of work in insurance. We, we do a lot of work in banking. We are the exclusive digital media partners of LIMRA, which is the largest uh, insurance association in the country. We also are partners with the American Bankers Association, but also Hootsuite. So we do a lot of uh, work with different platforms across the country, around the world, really. I just got back from Dubai, and uh, last year Betsy uh, taught in Hong Kong, so... Uh, a lot of uh, we've we've really taught this in more than a dozen countries now. And and with your uh, typical clients, what do you find are their typical struggles? What what challenges are they hiring you to uh, to address? So with our because we work a lot in financial services, this is an industry that had some really some big barriers, especially when you think of social media adoption. There's lots of uh, regulatory hurdles. There's lots of just culture internally. And so when we come in, for instance, and help their sales teams, their producers, their advisors, their agents lean into using digital touch points as part of the sales process, we are really helping them kind of rethink their culture, rethink how they think about sales. And so it's not just about the technology. It's about the, the sales strategy and the thinking. And what we deeply, deeply believe at Mindset Digital is everyone is willing to change. They just need to have a clear path of what change looks like. And too often, uh, lots of folks feel like all oh, this new technology coming at us, it's murky, we don't understand it, there may be risks involved. It's, all, it's just easier to do nothing. Where we have our greatest success is when we can make it really clear for folks what it is that they need to do, build in enthusiasm, excitement. We always talk about the why, not just about the how. Too much technology training focuses only on the how. If you can give people the why, they'll be motivated, and then provide support as they are learning those skills that's how you get to change. And we see it happen all the time. I always say we move people. We had this guy come up to us uh, at a big conference we were giving for one of our uh, big financial clients. And he said, I hated this stuff. And I got to tell you, I just want to say thanks because I thought I was going to have to retire. And now I realize I can do this. And my aha moment, because, you know, I didn't think I was going to be out uh, really doing corporate workforce training. But my aha moment was, when you gamify this and you make it engaging and compelling and you do the why and you, you really focus on habit formation and you give people quests and you, you know, track it and, and all of that, uh, you're moving people from reluctance to relevance. And there's real power in people feeling like I'm not overwhelmed, so overwhelmed by what's happening in the world now. I actually can do this. So it's, that's the, the passion that comes in, this, this the passion is sort of part a, of the concept. This is a little self-serving on my part, but I, I think they're – is a misconception that you have to be a digital native right. to know how to use social media. But I think yeah. even old people like me can figure it out. And, mm -hmm. you know, in fact, I mean, if you're a journalist, if you know how to write a headline, you know yeah. how to write a tweet. Um, mm -hmm. Now, people in the financial services businesses mm -hmm. don't necessarily know how to write a headline either. So right. you, you've got further to travel. Can you kind of walk us through a, a little bit of a case study. You don't have to give sure. us the name of the client, but tell us, sure. you know, it, with, with the idea being that maybe someone listening to this can figure out what it is they need to do to, to master some of these platforms yeah. and channels. Sure. And we can actually give you the client. So we did a case study with Mass Mutual with 34 advisors down in Miami when we first launched, for example, our social selling habit program. And what you know is People, even when you're doing training in social, and we do training in digital too, like AI and blockchain and all of that, but on the social front, people get excited and then they go back and they do nothing. But what we do is we do quests. So every week we'll say, okay, 
everyone you're just going to do this one thing. This week you're going to get five new introductions. This week you're going to work on your social selling index score. This week, you know, we give them very specific quests, and then we gamify it. So every week we're saying Bob got the most meetings. Joe did this, and then we report out results. So with 34 advisors, they got nearly 400 new meetings during the five-week coaching process, which was 177% increase using social. And that was a big But what were they doing on social? What were, what were the micro stories? What, what were they sharing that allowed yeah, them to get so those results? Here's the big, I think here's the big, um, the big thing that people don't get. Posting is not prospecting. You know, no one ever said, hey, Deborah, I love your post. Can I buy something from you? So what you're really teaching people how to do is network using, it's sort of networking on steroids. So I'm going to look up my top clients and figure out who they know that I want to know. And then you've got to teach them, how do I actually ask for an introduction? So that's what we're doing on the social front. But we're also teaching people how to write for mobile. In the old days, and as a journalist, you know, you really have to get, we call it, we have a program called the SOS Habit. You've got to get to short, organized, and skimmable. Because I'm deleting more emails than I'm reading. And if you want to break through the noise, uh, you have to actually even teach them, how do I write and ask for an introduction that people are actually going to open? Because we get 147 emails a day uh, on average. And what I find fascinating about that is if you can save 25, cents or 25 seconds an email, you can save a day a week. So think about just the power of teaching people how to write in a more compelling way. Or how to delete in a more <laughs> compelling way. Um, you said that your ultimate goal is to get rid of corporate boring. Yeah, um, sure. You picked the insurance industry to focus on. Um, and banking. Uh, but we do work I, in hospitality. Was the idea that if you can do it with insurance, you're proving that you can do it for anybody? Well, that, that's true. We also work with hospitality. We work with tech firms. We, I mean, we... We've done a lot in insurance because they have big distribution, distributed workforces. But, yes, if you can get them to engage in a more informal, short, engaging, fun way of communicating, then you've really made a huge impact. And people lighten up. I mean, they get really jazzed about this. You see a new energy with folks when they adopt these digital approaches. Can you do something to get me to click on an, uh, a tweet from an insurance company? <laughs> what? So it's really about personalization, right? And we're not teaching people how to write engaging content on Twitter. We're teaching people how to leverage the personal networks they already have. That's why we say posting is not prospecting. What would you say about that? Yeah. Well, what I also love about the work that we do is it really applies to everything. I mean, it really is a new way of thinking about how you communicate and connect. And it, it transcends Twitter or even LinkedIn. I mean, emails... My favorite comment recently, we were doing, um, because we do live workshops still, we were doing a workshop for uh, a client. And at the end of it, I was asking people for their number one takeaway that they were going to apply immediately. And a guy looked at me and he said, I am rethinking my entire life. (laughs) Just recognizing the power of communication and communicating in a digital mobile world is different than the world many of us grew up in. And we have to rethink because if we stick to our old patterns, lengthy emails and and, and, and long reports and dense memos, we're not going to be able to move at the speed of business. And so uh, everything we do, there's there's Mm -hmm. small... It feels like maybe a small change. I mean, we talk about writing a tweet. Well, that's really kind of a high-level skill. It's a high-level cognitive skill to figure out, I mean, what is the lead? What is the takeaway? What is the headline? How do I distill it? And how do I do it in a way that's going to make you want to find out more? So yeah. there's, bigger, there's bigger changes behind what we do, and that's why I think our work yeah. has impact. One other example I would say, though, is for another client, we just rolled out 33 thousand seats to a cybersecurity training that is was created uh, loosely based kind of in a Game of Thrones fashion. So it's Vikings and it's really funny and it's fully Xbox kind of that kind of thinking gamified and it's really people the response has been incredible. People are like, why can't all of our training be like this? So if you can make sort of cybersecurity training gamified and fun there's not much that you can't really unpack in a way that is just easier to take in, easier to understand, and easier to act on. So if you want people to act, we say you have to get them to think differently and before they'll act differently. That's the Mindset Digital name. I'm speaking with Deborah Jasper and Betsy Hubbard of Mindset Digital. We're at the EY Strategic Growth Forum in Palm Springs, California. 
Do you guys also deal with the issue of um, just training employees in general at a company what's what's appropriate and what's not appropriate on social media and setting policy? We had a course called Think Twice, Post Once, <laughs> which has been, which we rolled out at a couple of banks that really, um, it's it's really our course that's not, but we'll customize it a little bit for what they actually, what their policies are. But again, it's less about social these days and more about just overall digital thinking. You know, writing for mobile, people don't think of email as a digital skill, but when you say, no, actually it is because you have to write for a mobile phone, that's a really different way of thinking. And then the other training that we're doing for leadership is just they don't really understand blockchain. They don't understand AI. They don't understand. I'm thinking of some of the other courses that we have. Okay, I, I got to stop the you there. Front, you, right? you, you've so. mentioned the word blockchain twice. Yeah. Um, what is it you're doing with blockchain? So, we have a whole leadership course that really helps leaders think through what is all of this new technology and how does it impact you. Yeah, because the first step from, for a lot of folks right now is just increasing their level, really, of almost digital literacy. We hear a lot of buzzwords, but we don't necessarily know the meaning behind them, and it's very hard to become a decision maker in this world if you don't have some degree of comfort with what this really means. And and so often what happens is who we're hearing from are the technologists who aren't great translators about what this means. <laughs> she said, so putting in it mildly. So in some sense, you know, we're serving a role that journalists have traditionally played with coming in and helping people just translate what's going on in plain, accessible, understandable language so people feel more comfortable and confident engaging in the conversations. So we're not going to advise your business on where blockchain fits in, but we are going to make you feel more comfortable having the conversation with folks about whether there's a role for blockchain or not. So thousands of leaders across an organization may go through our, we call it our dot next curricula, where you're learning here's all the new things that are coming next and here's how it applies to your industry. So then you at least know everyone is on the same page and understands what you're talking about when you start using you know, blockchain jargon or think, talking about chatbots or AI or emotion analytics or any of that. Because a lot of us, it, it's really exactly what Betsy said. It's digital literacy training. So tell us a little bit about how your business has grown. Uh, where are you now? Where do you hope to be? So um, our business has grown a lot over the last seven years that we've been in business. Again, we started with two women and a laptop and quickly recognized that's not very scalable. So moving online has made a big difference. Moving beyond financial is where we are now. Um, Being named as an entrepreneurial winning women firm by EY is both a great privilege and, and a testimony to our team and the work that they have delivered exceeding expectations over the years and we think we have a really bright future so we're mapping out what that looks like for us it's it's uh, how many employees do you have now we have about 20 employees and a range of contractors that we work with regularly as we flex for projects. Um, and, you know, one of our advantages in some sense is that we are truly even seven years in a startup because every company has to continue to think like a startup. Uh, you know, we're still early in our growth and development. We've never lost that thinking. We never will because next year is going to look a lot different than this year. And that's built into our DNA as a company, which I think is a competitive advantage. But we've been growing fast and our rollouts are just getting bigger like that. 33,000 seat cybersecurity rollout. We're doing a lot of work right now on that social selling front. People are really hungry for that uh, program. So we've, um, yeah, the growth this year has been really exciting as we've leaned into a lot of the new programmatic uh, high-performance coaching and tracking. Is there, uh, we're going to have to let you go and get back to the conference, but uh, before I do, is there anything in particular that you've learned that you wish you knew when you got started? (laughs) Um, I'm glad I actually didn't know how tough it was going to be. So, I mean, it really is. I think that, you know, there is a lot to be said for people. Who, you've, you've got to put your head down and do the work. And as, as sexy or as exciting as people think that entrepreneurialism can be, and it can be, there are lots of highs. I mean, we get up every day really crazy jazzed. But there's just also a willingness to say, I'm going to be up till 2 a.m. tonight doing all that kind of heads-down work that it takes to make a company run. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I could come up with a long list of things that we've learned, but I mean, I think that that's the point. The future belongs to the learners. Most of us learn through our mistakes rather than through our accomplishments, and so you have to brace both sides of that and just keep moving on. 
I have to say, I've been coming to this event for close to 10 years now, and a big reason is the Winning Women program. Uh, as a journalist, it's been yeah. such a, a godsend. I, I don't know why more journalists haven't caught on to it, but it's such a great opportunity to be able to meet uh, uh, every year a new yeah. class of women who have been vetted by EY uh, and are doing you know, really interesting and impressive things, and obviously you guys are an example of that. Yes. Cool to go from a journalism program to a, <laughs> a mindset digital high growth company. Thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Deborah Jasper, Betsy Hubbard, Mindset Digital. Thank you. Thank you. And joining us now is yet another impressive entrepreneur, Joelle Faulkner, co founder and president of Area One Farms. Joelle, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate you taking the time. You are, uh, you have an interesting combination of farming and finance. I haven't spoken to too many businesses who uh, specialize in providing both of those things. Uh, the farming came first, right? The farming came first. Tell us a little bit about that. So I'm from a dairy farm in London, Ontario, which is halfway between Toronto and Detroit. And we milk uh, now 1,000 cows, but they built that over kind of my lifetime and really spearheaded by my dad and eventually my brother. And... Uh, that, that farm has been around for how long? Uh, we're fourth generation. Fourth generation, wow. Yeah. And um, it was your experience with that farm that led to the financing aspect of the business that you're building now, correct? Yeah, exactly. Tell so us what happened. I, uh, I really liked school, and I was not a particularly fond of four in the morning. So I was a less good milker. <laughs> um, so I uh, did a lot of finance work, and my brother wanted to expand the dairy, and particularly the land base, which is always what we invested in when we had any cash flow. And we looked at land, and he, he started a cattle dealing company and deals cattle across Canada, the States, and now internationally. And at the time, knew lots of areas in Canada that he thought were undervalued relative, like land productivity relative to price. Um, and his expertise is really dealing and building operating businesses and wanted help finding land and figuring out how you finance that land. And so we looked at that uh, kind of 2000, and he wanted help in 2005. By 2010, I started looking at it. It was after we had said no to a bit of land right beside us, which we would have loved to buy but couldn't because we had just built new dairy barns and so kind of had all of our capital tied up. And so when we looked at this, we started understanding how people were investing in farmland and tried to build the deal for the farmer that we wished we would have had when that land near us was for sale. T tell us what that means. What does it mean, build the deal for the farmer uh, the way you would have liked? So we really believe in land appreciation. So the idea that land is continually getting more productive and more profitable, and as a result is going up in value. And so we're big believers in investing in land as an asset base because we think it will continue to rise in value. Um, but you can't always do it. And so we looked at providing equity financing instead of debt financing so that it didn't have the risk. But in addition, sharing income and appreciation with the farmer on the investor side. So in our model, the, in, the farmer and I co-buy the expansion land, but they get, in addition to the part they own, they get an extra portion of both income and appreciation instead of salary. And because of that, in an appreciating market, they can always afford to buy more of the asset as opposed to less, uh, which we think is the right, the right outcome in that it's both their work and their life, and they bring a lot of value in making the, play, in the original purchase and then making the place productive over time. So you went from being in a situation where you did not have the capital to make uh, a land purchase you would have liked to, to coming up with the idea of starting a business to provide precisely that kind of financing to other farmers. Yeah, exactly. Where did you get the capital to finance the other farmers? So we invest, uh, we're alternative investment management for high net worth and institutional investors. So at the beginning, it was individuals uh, in our first farm. It was actually 10 individuals who were friends. Um, and everybody brought an interesting thing in that one. So there was a farmland appraiser who said, yeah, I like the value of this place. There were some crop producers who understood the economics and liked the value that it would provide. There was a corporate lawyer who structured the deal. There was a tax lawyer. Like, it was all kinds of people who said, you know what, this kind of seems like 
a good investment to make. And that deal, we called it the Chevy Truck Farm because everybody gave me $30,000, and I promised them that five years later it would be worth more than a five-year-old Chevy truck. (laughs) (laughs) So we kept stakes a bit low. Um, Over the first uh, four years, we raised two funds, and then last year we raised our biggest fund, and so it was a mix between high net worth and institutional investors. And we're now growing quite a bit with uh, especially the institutional investors because it gives them access to an asset class that otherwise is super hard to get into and hard to manage um, and in partnership with people who really do think about it 24-7. So you're not just lending money to farmers. You're making an investment in their farms. Yeah, we're making an investment usually in the expansion farm. So anecdotally, I call it third kid financing, which is if you have one kid, you give them the farm. If you have two kids, you take on a little bit more debt than you'd like, and you give them the farm. But if you have three kids, you need either equity or too much debt. That's really interesting. What's a, describe a typical client of yours. How big a farm are we talking about? Uh, so we usually think kind of Canadian prairies. Uh, so the average farm size there would be about 1,200 acres. And your larger farms would be somewhere in the kind of 5,000 to 7,000 acres. We usually work with guys who are two to 4,000 acres uh, when we start with them, and we grow them to kind of ten to 12,000 acres, uh, and then work with them from there. So are these typically family farms? Totally uh, family farms. What's it like in Canada? You know, obviously uh, in the U.S., um, you know, big ag has kind of taken over. There are far fewer family farms than there used to be. Is that the situation in Canada as well? Canada's almost entirely family farms. Uh, and Why? How do, So I actually think the U.S. is way more family farms than people realize. Uh, I don't know the exact statistics. I think some of the difference is Americans are generally bigger risk takers, and so even the family farms in the States will rent a lot more of their land base than in Canada. Uh, So we have generally owned operated farms. That would be over 99.9%. Like it's a super low number of non-family farms. I think a lot of that is family farms are really low-cost producers. They are able to manage efficiently and well. They do the work when they need to. Like it's hard to get that kind of commitment under any other structure. Um, and so we see them do well and really thrive, be an important part of the economy, and really important to rural communities. And so we think that this way we do, the farmer does better, the community does better. Um, and if we do it right, we think the investor does better. Interesting. There's been a lot in the news uh, in recent months uh, about NAFTA, about uh, our president complaining about how Canada protects its dairy farmers. Um, Has any of that had an impact on your business? So interestingly, we don't, even though my family's business is in dairy, we actually work at the moment entirely with crop producers. And so we invest in what we call land-based agriculture, which would be uh, row crop, commodity producers, beef producers, there may be a point where we invest in permanent crop, but it's very unlikely, given our investor base, that we'd end up in any of the uh, quota industries. On quota, I actually think it's a really good system in terms of price stabilization uh, and doesn't end up with nearly as much consumer pricing issues as people think, or any, really. So we kind of If you think of us, we're almost trying to create the same kind of stabilized system that you get under a supply management system, but in a really unstable environment. So when you get into crop production or beef production, really unstable uh, in terms of great years and not great years. And by doing equity financing, we can actually stabilize that. We think when you get rid of the friction in volatility, you can make a lot more money. Tell, explain to us how you get rid, how you stabilize things with the equity investment. Is it just as simple as uh, providing money that uh, gives uh, a little bit of a cushion to a farmer having a tough year? Or yeah, and because what you don't have then is you don't have big rent payments, and you don't have interest payments, and so even in a really bad crop year, you're going to pay back your operating expenses. You're just not going to pay back your land cost, whether that's rent or interest in principal. And so this way you don't have those. Uh, So in a really bad year, it's not a great year. Nobody's excited about it. It doesn't make you want to go out and and have a party or or be excited even about um, going back out for the next year necessarily. But you don't lose money. And if you're not losing money, you can afford to keep going. So 
we think that the stability of that gives real, true sustainability to the producer, the family, the industry, uh, and that that creates more value for everyone. And what we're just trying to get into now is actually helping the partners improve their operations and trying to leverage a bit of scale between them so that they can help each other and we can help them. I'm Lauren Feldman. You're listening to Mind Your Business on Sirius XM 132. I'm speaking with Joelle Faulkner, a co-founder and president of Area One Farms. Uh, we're live at the EY Strategic Growth Forum in Palm Springs. Um, Joelle, you, you, what you just referred to, you, you're, you're not just providing equity. You're trying to provide, uh, it sounds like, all kinds of advice to help farmers better run what they do. It sounds like it might be, to some extent, a, a, a data play? Are you helping them understand uh, what they should be growing and how they should be pricing what they grow? So my, I've always called our office helpful where possible. And we haven't been that possible because we didn't know as much as our producers. Uh, but we're learning from them and over time working with them to develop strategies that will exactly do that. Interesting. Is there, do you sense there's a big need for that? Um, I think it, everybody does their best. And they do actually an amazing job. And with the number of management decisions that they have to make in all kinds of areas, uh, our producers and producers generally who are doing well in primary production agriculture are doing a great job. I think that there is some value to looking across guys. My view of it has always been that everybody has some extra energy, but you don't have quite enough to do extra on everything. So you might be an amazing person at negotiating your machinery contracts, but maybe that means you don't work quite as hard at negotiating your fertilizer bill. Or you might be amazing at negotiating your fertilizer bill, and it means you just don't have the time or the energy to figure out uh, a better crop marketing plan. And so our view is if we have 10 producers or 20 producers or 100 producers that we work with, we can start looking at who's good at each of those things and giving people the guideposts to say, hey, these guys got, got this kind of deal. And that kind of information is super helpful. Um, and I think, I think to the extent that we can be helpful, that's what we want to be. It sounds like um, such a, I guess like a lot of businesses, once you do it, it seems obvious and you wonder why someone else hasn't done it. It seems like an obvious business plan to figure out a way to help farmers uh, get the money they need to, to stabilize their, uh, their growth um, to buy land and expand when they have the opportunity to do so, and to do it in a way where you're not you're not trying to get as many points out of them on a loan or or something like that. Do you, is anybody else doing anything like this? Do you have competitors? Uh, we don't have people under the same model, and the really hard thing for people to do and to manage well is both uh, help manage the operations, but also give away part of the appreciation. Sharing appreciation in capital-intensive industries has generally not been done. So you see it in kind of what people would call sweat equity around technology. But those things are things that generally very little capital and either huge growth or a total disaster. And in either of those cases, you don't worry so much about how you've shared um, the appreciation. But in capital-intensive industries, that's usually not the case. And so really figuring out, like, we have to do better with our partnerships than other people do on other structures because we are sharing more with the partner. That's a little bit of a tricky concept to get your head around. And then it's all about execution. And execution is, uh, it's really exciting because it's really hard. What have you struggled with? What hasn't gone according to plan? Well, there's just like a thousand things that I learned all the time. So some of it is about the operations and and really the trickiness, like how do we become more valuable to partners in that? Some of them is how should we structure? So in some cases, we own machinery with the partners. In other cases, we don't own the machinery. When we don't, how do we figure out what to pay them? Like we really, we run win-win partnerships. It means we have to actually sit down with the partners and figure out how does everybody win on all kinds of little operating decisions. Um, What that has meant for us is we've, gotten ourselves into associated businesses that have been really exciting and really value generating. So we do more land conversion cleanup work in Canada than any other group. So we buy a lot of land that was historically used for agriculture maybe 30 or 50 years ago, was then used for forestry um, or kind of recreation, and so it was overgrown. And we clear the overgrowth, and we drain the water, and we build land 
and that has huge value. But that is a whole other business than just land ownership and a business that we was totally worth learning, and now we're getting good at, and now we're trying to expand. How big an operation are we talking about? How many employees do you have? So we have 10 employees, um, but we work with a dozen farmers, and if you kind of trail that down, you're, you're looking at about 50 people, including farms and, and operators and staff. Do you say what your revenues are? Uh, we don't. We talk about acres, and we talk about assets invested. Uh, so we have about 110,000 acres in partnership with great farmers, and, uh, and we've invested about $220 million, and we're just raising our next funds, um, hopefully to be about double that. What's your ultimate vision? Where do you see this going? I'd like to be the best option for financing farm growth in North America. Meaning in the U.S. as well? Well, we haven't gotten there. There's a lot of other But is that part of the goal? I don't know. I have to see if it has the right opportunity set. What, um, what would be the, uh, the biggest challenge, do you think? What's, what's different? Um, I'm trying to build a team that's world-class. And like you started with when you said, I haven't met many people who do finance and do farming. <laughs> it's actually really hard to find people who do finance and do farming and will join us when we're, like, not very big. Interesting. Even though uh, it's so obviously such an appealing concept uh, and you've gotten so far at this point, uh, I can understand the skepticism initially. No one else had done it before. Uh, what do you think it will take to, to prove it to those uh, people who are skeptical? Well, it'll take a little bit of time to find them and then a lot of vision around where we're going. Joel Faulkner, thank you so much for joining us. Really Thanks appreciate so you taking the time. I really appreciate it. If you want to know more uh, about Area One Farms, you can go to arealonefarms.ca uh, and you can also find them on Twitter at Area One Farms. You're listening to Mind Your Business here on Sirius XM's Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. That's channel 132. And I'm here with my next guest, Heather Payne, CEO of HackerU College of Technology. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Tell us about HackerU. So HackerU is a private career college based in Toronto, Canada. I started it myself from the ground up, absolutely nothing, in, in 2012. And we've grown it over the years to now serve about uh, 1,300 students a year or so from a 12,000-square-foot campus right in the middle of downtown Toronto. What did, you, what did you do previously that prepared you to uh, start a business like this? Yeah, so I have a business degree, actually. Uh, but in my final year uh, of school, I went on exchange to Hong Kong. And then, liked it so much, I decided to move to China. And while I was there, I was preparing for my return to Toronto, and I thought, I should learn how to code. It just, like, came to me. This was in 2009. Um, and was there I, a specific goal in mind? No, I thought, well, it was the recession. And so I thought, you know, if I can add this skill set to my resume and combine it with my business background, uh, maybe that would make me more appealing to potential employers. Uh, so when I moved back to Toronto, I had been doing that for a while, but it was tough, you know, to, to navigate Google and figure it out and try and find the tutorials you need to learn. So I had... Uh, you tried to teach yourself initially. Yes, exactly. And I, I had the idea that there should be workshops for women who want to learn how to code. So the first thing I started was actually Ladies Learning Code. It's a nonprofit organization in Canada. Uh, it's now called Canada Learning Code. And they actually received $9 million from the federal government last year. So that organization is doing amazing. And it showed me the potential opportunity for a business that not just does one-day workshops, but actually delivers multi-month-long training courses. And so Hackery was born. Um, did you ever use your coding skills to code something? Yes, totally. I've made a bunch of sites. I made a, a website for my wedding a few years ago. Um, and back in the day when I was first learning, I had this blog about fitness. It was called Fit in TO because I, I live in Toronto. <laughs> and how did it do? Um, you know, I actually sold it to somebody. Really? I sold it to a fitness instructor. I forget how much. It wasn't a lot, maybe $1,000 or something like that. But that's kind of a cool outcome for your first website that you've built. That's great. Did you ever uh, consider taking a job as, uh, you know, doing coding for somebody else? No, I never got that far. So I really am more excited about uh, the business side of things. And also, I love um, helping young people train or retrain and, and build the skills of a developer and get them into exciting jobs where they can contribute to our economy and move into their parents' house for the first time and feel really satisfied at work. So I'm a lot more passionate about helping other people to make that transition. 
is it mostly young people who come uh, and take the course, or do you get a range? Yeah, so we have a couple different products. Our, our most sort of well-known um, thing that we offer is a nine-week intensive program. So you can come in with uh, basic coding skills, and by the end of nine weeks full-time with us, you're job ready. And I will work with you one-on-one directly on your job hunt until you are employed. Um, so that program, I would What's say, a typical job somebody might get? Oh, yeah, web, web developer, front-end developer. We've got people working at all, all the big banks and the telecom. But mostly got, in Toronto? Uh, mostly in Toronto. That's, that's what they want. Uh, but we've had people use the skills to move to the U.K., uh, we've had people move from the States to Toronto for the course and then move back with the skill set that they have. Um, and yeah, so those people, I would say that the average age is probably like early to mid twenties up until kind of early to mid thirties is sort of the core group there. And actually something cool about Hacker U, we're the only uh, school of our kind founded and run by a woman and 60% of our students are female. So there's no, um, gender gap in tech in, in my world. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 60% of how many students a year? Of around 1,300. And most of them come from Toronto? Yeah, mostly from Toronto. So what does that tell us about this, the gender gap in tech? The, the, the people are out there, they're just not... Yeah, I have a few ideas. One for sure is like the CEO's a woman, like it's me. So I think that shows people that this is a place where women belong. Um, we also work really hard to make sure that we're, we're presenting diversity. Um, so our team is super diverse, lots of women on our team, lots of, of people of, of different backgrounds and races as well. Um, and now when you go onto our alumni page and we have headshots of everyone who's ever been through the program on there, you will see someone who looks like you. Uh, guaranteed, no matter where you come from, you'll find someone who has a background like yours. Um, You know what? (laughs) I'm trying to think. You know, not that far off, though. Not that far off. Really? Um, Yeah, so it's very exciting to see, like, okay, well, if they've done it, I can do it. You can't be what you can't see. They've said that a lot of times. So we're really trying to model, like, this this industry technology is for everybody. This is um, such an important hot-button issue right now. I would think you would have big tech companies from all around North America beating down your door to get access to your graduates. Yeah, our grads are, um, they are juniors. You know, it's, it's a nine-week program. They're extremely well-trained for the time that we have. Uh, but more so, we're working with them to help them have the skills to get a job. So we do have employers, you know, who come and, and they but hire out of each program. I, I talk to business owners all the time yeah. whose biggest problem is finding talent. Yeah. And, you know, it's true if they're in Silicon Valley, but it's also true if they're in Columbus, Ohio, or Miami, or For Nashville. Sure. You know, uh, in- there's, there's no perfect answer to that. And that's, that's just to hire a body to, to actually find a woman and diversify the workforce, which everybody, well, right. almost everybody is aware now that yeah. they have good reason to try to do. In, in 2017, we placed 97% of our grads, and 80% of them were placed within four months. So whether or not companies are coming to us, we're making sure that these grads are getting jobs, um, and uh, they're staying in tech. What's, uh, what's your business model? Do you... Uh, yeah, we charge tuition, so it's a very traditional business model. You pay to come to the program, we deliver the program for you, and then well, we help you find a job afterwards. And do you charge employers? Do you do? We don't. No, we don't charge employers. I have um, seen some competitors take that approach, um, but I'm I'm excited if our grads can get their first job. Uh, it could be exciting over the years, over time. Maybe we could shift it, and our tuition to students could be less, and employers could pay part of the uh, the other half of the tuition or something like that. But uh, down the road, that might be possible. It, it sounds like you may have sort of cracked the code a little bit in terms of getting women to. Um, to really focus on this area as something that they can and should do. Um, Did you come up with a marketing plan to do that? Did you have to do outreach or was it enough to open your doors, be a a, a woman founder and people just came to you? Yeah, I mean, it it helped that Ladies Learning Code was my first venture. So I already had back in 2011 this group of women who liked the work that I was doing to bring technology education to to them. And so a lot of those people who came to those Ladies Learning Code workshops early on became our first students in HackerU, which is, of course, you know, co-ed. And then over time, it's just become sort of more so. People, you know, there are other options for where people could go in Toronto, but um, the people who are HackerU you people, they, they pick us. There's a lot of focus in this country uh, on trying to retrain people who are in careers that have mm-hmm. you know either ended or stalled and need to find another way uh, to make a living. Have you uh, approach that aspect of it as well? Yeah, so in addition to our vocational program where you can become a developer, uh, we have tons and tons of continuing education courses, so, which are for people who don't want to make the switch to development, but they realize that they need to upgrade their skills to be competitive in today's uh, job market. So in that 
group, we have a much broader demographic. People in high school all the way up to men and women in their 60s have come really? to those programs. Um, it does require uh, a level of digital literacy. So you need to be able to type quickly uh, in order to survive in these courses. So it's not for exactly everybody, but certainly a broader demographic than the vocational program. So, you, But you can teach somebody in their 60s to code. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> we could teach anyone. Really? Yeah. Uh, might have to see if we can uh, challenge that theory. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. Um, what... Um, what challenges have you faced? I mean, there's, there's such an obvious need mm-hmm. for the graduates you're producing. Has everything gone according to your business plan, or mm-hmm. have you uh, struggled with anything? We've had a pretty smooth ride. Um, I'm a really hands-on operator, um, and I am the sole owner. I own 100% of the business, and so it's really on me to both come up with the big ideas that are going to help us continue to grow, but also the one really responsible for making sure that the business is running smoothly all the time. Um, So the last few years have been definitely focused on me operating the business, getting pieces running smoothly, and I'm just getting to the size now where I can start to build a leadership team, which I'm really excited about, have, have experts and leaders in different roles at HackerU so that I can put a little bit more attention into the future and where we're headed. We have a really exciting 10-year vision um, that I couldn't be more excited about. This is my life's work. Um, and I stumbled upon this when I was 23, you know, so I've already been at it for seven, or over seven years and, you know, nowhere near done for sure. I'm Lauren Feldman. This is Mind Your Business on Sirius XM 132. I'm speaking with Heather Payne, CEO of HackerU College of Technology in Toronto. Share a few of the highlights from that 10-year vision. Where where do you see this going? Sure, yeah. I have a, a dream of a multi-hundred-acre campus, one to two hours from Toronto, where we teach um, people computer science. But instead of it taking four years, like it takes when you go to university, it takes two. And so we take the best parts of whatever is happening in those great four-year programs, we drill it down into two years, and we put everybody in the school through the exact same program, producing thousands and thousands of graduates with amazing computer science skills every year. That's a great vision. What, um, what difference does it make that this business is in Toronto? Um, is there any more or less need uh, for what you're doing in Canada than there would be here? Would it make any difference if you were in Detroit instead? Um, so, I mean, Toronto's a huge city. So Toronto, I think, is the fourth largest city or fifth, fourth or fifth in North America. Um, so it's a massive market, huge technology businesses in Toronto and more coming all the time. Amazon's on their way. Shopify was founded in Ottawa, but has a very large Toronto office. Um, so definitely there's a huge demand in Toronto. Um, but I think, you know, we've seen schools like mine popping up all over North America. There were three in the U.S. um, that I was inspired by when I started uh, mine in Toronto. So I think it's more that there's a need for this everywhere, and it just so happens that my home is Toronto, so that's where I've chosen. Do you have competitors in Toronto? Absolutely, yes. We have four direct competitors, and I also see the universities and colleges as competitors as well. Are they... Uh, in general, doing what uh, they need to do to turn out people who are qualified for the kinds of jobs that you're? Mm, We made a specific choice um, probably about a year and a half ago that although demand for our program was increasing, we were getting more and more applications, we decided to stick with four cohorts a year whereas some competitors were deciding to double that and go to eight cohorts a year. Um, and we knew that that meant that the students who got into those four cohorts would be the best. You know, So we became more selective. We decided to go for a sort of Wharton strategy, maybe you could say. Um, and so we're the school that you want to get into if you can. Um, and if you can't, then maybe you go to one of the others. So you don't just take anybody who, uh, who's willing to pay the uh, tuition. Absolutely. And, and that's key. So we get over 200 applications for every cohort. There's 40 spots per cohort. So it's actually highly selective. Wow. Um, and I think What are you looking for? So we're looking for the same competencies as MBA programs, actually. We're looking for leadership potential, communication skills, both written and verbal, adaptability, resilience, motivation. Um, and we're also looking for people who fit with HackerU's core values, which include things like being welcoming, having fun, um, and a few others. We have a list of six. So people who fit both of those are HackerU kinds of people, and it helps to create our community. Our alumni community is extremely passionate, very, like, they love what they're doing. They come and visit us every Friday. We have these events all the time that are totally sold out. Like, there's a real like thing happening at HackerU that's currently a little under the radar, but as we grow over the next 10 years, I'm, I'm expecting to take some people by surprise and maybe look like one of those sort of overnight successes, even though it's been taking this long. So what would it take to get to that vision you, you talked about of establishing the, the big campus? Um, 
outside of Toronto, would you have to raise a lot of money to do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm curious to see how, how far I can self-fund this thing because um, I think one of the reasons there aren't a lot of... Um, so our industry has bad rap. Private education, private career colleges in particular, um, there's, there's a lot of really bad ones. I can't even think in of... In Canada a, as well as Oh, and the, and the States, everywhere. I can't even think of an, an example of one who's been around for a long time that has a good reputation. I think they get greedy and they put the student experience second to making a bunch of money. And so that's why I think it's important that I maintain control. Currently have 100% of the business. I have no, uh, no one on my board telling me how fast I need to grow. I do it based on my team's capabilities and the demand and what we're seeing in the market and how quickly our grads are getting jobs. And that's how we choose how quickly to grow. So I'm going to take it as far as I can on my own, um, being very careful with our resources. And at some point down the road, I assume, like to, to build a multi-hundred acre campus, you're going to have to raise some money. But I'd like to do that as late as possible to try and maintain control. Um, do you... Um do you do anything in your program to help people like you whose goal is to learn coding to be an entrepreneur as opposed to get a job? Mm-hmm. We, we do actually make people uh, promise and sort of sign a contract that they will commit uh, full-time to their job search when they graduate. So we do want people, the first step out of the program is to get a job as a developer because that's how we see that we've done our job. We're like, we got you placed. Um, you're working for another company as a developer. Like we can kind of consider that like fully complete. But we have lots of grads who, you know, after after a year or two of working, they're starting to think about what's next. We've had people start their own agencies. Um, people become freelance developers very successfully as well. So I, I can see down the road, you know, our, our oldest grads finished in 2014. So they have about five years of experience. I can see down the road as they have 10 or 15 years of experience, they are going to be starting businesses and hopefully hiring grads out of the program. Heather Payne, CEO of HackerU College of Technology, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Really interesting uh, business, really interesting journey, uh, of which we've heard quite a few here today at the EY Strategic Growth Forum. This concludes our special edition of Mind Your Business. We're live from the EY Strategic Growth Forum in Palm Springs, but we've run out of time. The good news is we're here live every Thursday, not here in Palm Springs, unfortunately, but here on the air live every Thursday at 1 Eastern Time, 10 Pacific Time. And next week, we'll be back to uh, taking your calls. I hope you uh, got lots of inspiration out of hearing these journeys from these really impressive entrepreneurs, especially those who've gone through the uh, Working Women program. It's an, uh, it's an amazing program that I've been following for about 10 years. I have met so many uh, impressive women who have started uh, amazing businesses. And I, I love coming back here every year and uh, following up with them and seeing how far they've gotten. And I hope to do that with you next year, Heather. Uh, we will be back next week as usual at 1 p.m. You've been listening to Mind Your Business on Sirius XM 132. I'm Lauren Feldman. Thanks for listening, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.